This episode of One True Podcast is supported by the Hemingway Review, the scholarly journal of the Ernest Hemingway Foundation and Society. Michael and I are huge fans of the Hemingway Review. We always read it to see the latest scholarship. You can buy back issues of the Hemingway Review at HemingwaySociety.org backslash journals. Welcome to our special holiday edition of One True Podcast. My name is Mark Chirino with Michael Von Cannon producing. In his memoir, A Movable Feast, Ernest Hemingway wrote, all you have to do is write one true sentence. Write the truest sentence that you know. So finally, I would write one true sentence and then go on from there. In that same spirit of honesty, creativity, and curiosity, One True Podcast explores all things related to Ernest Hemingway, his life, his work, and his world. And before we begin our special holiday episode, 2022 has been so exciting here at One True Podcast, so I would like to say some quick thank yous. First, as always, I want to say thanks to our listeners, those who are new to the show and those who have been around since the beginning. Michael and I thank you for all your support, your loyalty, your enthusiasm, all the feedback that we get. We really do appreciate you being out there. Uh, we do love all of that immaterial support. And we also want to thank specifically our Patreon followers for support, both immaterial and material. Thanks for helping us keep the lights on, guys. At the end of 2022, we also need to thank the team at Godine for bringing out One True Sentence, writers and readers on Hemingway's art, they have been so supportive and professional and pleasant, and we're thrilled to be able to represent what we do here with such a beautiful book. Special nod to Josh Bodwell, who has been so kind and helpful to us. I would also like personally to thank my collaborator and co-creator, Michael Von Cannon, who is the silent half of this partnership. It's been over three years of him putting up with me, so we are clearly on borrowed time. But Michael, thank you for being so brilliant. Thanks for your friendship, and thanks for everything. And of course, finally, in 2022, One True Podcast has had unbelievable guests, uh, an embarrassment of riches. So I want to thank each of them for their generosity and expertise, patience, for working with Michael and me, you've been fantastic. Thanks to everyone who has appeared. And included in that thank you is our final guest of 2022. She is back by popular demand. She's a great friend of One True Podcast, a professor of English at Chestnut Hill College in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. She is the celebrated editor of the Hemingway Review. She has published more than 20 articles in scholarly journals and has co-edited three books, most recently the excellent The New Hemingway Studies with Kirk Kernut. She also has had a wonderful chapter in Reading Hemingway's Winner Take Nothing, uh, she, which was devoted to God Rest You Merry Gentlemen. Uh, you can listen to an episode devoted to that on an earlier One True Podcast. Suzanne Delgizzo joins us today to discuss Hemingway's chronicle of his 1954 plane crashes, which he wrote in Look magazine. 
appropriately called the Christmas gift. Suzanne Del Gizzo, welcome to One True Podcast. Thanks. Great to be here again. It is. And Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas to you. Happy holidays. It wouldn't be Christmas without you appearing on One True Podcast. And before we start talking about Hemingway's The Christmas Gift, uh, we would like you to open the present that we sent to you. Would you do that? All right. Yes. Happy to. I've been waiting to do this all week. <laughs> A bottle of golden cheap cherry. <laughs> I'm only kidding. That's the joke if you know the Christmas gift. It is a beautiful One True Podcast mug. Yes, a one-of-a-kind uh, item. Uh, Suzanne, we know you drink coffee to get through the semester. Mm -hmm. And that is a one-of-a-kind One True Podcast mug created by my University of Evansville colleague, Christy Hoshwender, who is a genius at ceramics and pottery. Uh, and can you read the quote that is also emblazoned on that side of that mug? Yes, I can. Write the truest sentence that you know, Ernest. There you go. Okay. Yeah. Well, enjoy it. It's brand on. <laughs> uh, use it in good health. I love it. Thank you so much. You got it. Well deserved. So, I think this article that we're going to talk about is, I, I, I mean, it's very rarely discussed in Hemingway circles. It's quite possible that many of our listeners haven't read it. Even people who are devoted Hemingway followers, this might have, you know, slipped through the cracks. So Suzanne, maybe you can tell us a little bit about this just to situate us. What's it about, how it appeared and put it in context for us. Sure. So um, the Christmas gift appeared in the 19, April 1954 issue of Look magazine. And for anybody familiar with Hemingway's life, they'll know that in April 1954, or by that time, he uh, had experienced or was involved in two relatively, well, one relatively significant plane crash, but two plane crashes back to back toward the end of his 1953-1954 African safari. So The Christmas Gift is, is an article that he agreed to write for Look Magazine um, very shortly after the, the second crash. Um, and I think he was paid about $20,000 for, for this, for this um, contribution. And it's quite long. It's, it's, it's a significant, it was spread over to the April and the May 1954 um, issues. So that's, that's the basic background. Yeah. If listeners would like to read it now, they can find it in the collection byline Ernest Hemingway, which is a collection of his journalism and, and various writings. But Suzanne, what do we know about look magazine particularly in, in Look Magazine's association with Hemingway? Okay, so my understanding of uh, Look is that it was, a, it was a lifestyle magazine. I think it was one of the major competitors for Life magazine. Um, so it was founded in 1937, and it was published through to 1971. I think at the height of its popularity, which was actually in the 60s, it had a circulation of, of almost 8 million. Oh. 
Um, so it was a pretty big, uh, it was a large format magazine, 11 by 14. And it was really known for, uh, you know, it's vibrant photography and, um, and, um, it's, it's sort of, uh, I don't know, it's sort of human interest and lifestyle type pieces of writing. And I don't know, you know, I did try to look into this, but in all of my research, I don't know that Hemingway was involved with Look before the 1953-54 safari. I haven't found any evidence of that. I'm not saying that wasn't the case, but I, I haven't seen it. Uh, but I do know that he was itching to go back to Africa. And uh, it had been 20 years since his first safari, which was 1933-34. Uh, but it's an expensive endeavor. And so Look agreed to pay $15,000 toward the safari and then another $10,000 for a photo essay. And Hemingway wrote only about 3,500 words, I think, for that essay. And so uh, that that agreement, that deal, allowed him to take his second safari. And byline Ernest Hemingway has one other piece that he wrote for Look. Oh, which is called a situation report. And that's a little bit. Oh, that's the one right after. Yes, that's the one right after. But beyond Mm -hmm. that, those are really the only two look pieces that are uh, connected. Uh, Susan, before we talk about the article itself, there's uh, two things that you mentioned I wanted also to, to pin down. The first is the kind of trauma that Hemingway went through, particularly with the second plane crash, where he was really seriously injured, um, both cognitively physically. And are you surprised that just a couple months later, he's able to write this really long, expansive article about it? I mean, that he was in the shape to do that? Well, yeah, it is actually surprising. And in fact, I think I don't even know that he wrote it a couple of months later. I think he, you know, my understanding is that he narrated it to Kit Figgis while he was recovering in Nairobi. Um, and he sort of narrated the majority of it before or all of it in some form. I don't know what kind of revision process it went through, but that he sort of got that all down before he even went to Mombasa at the end of the safari. So the meat of it was was there, you know, within a few weeks of the crash. And that makes it even more. Well, that's fascinating. Uh, the other thing that I wanted to say, and then we can go into the, the article itself is. So as the editor of the Hemingway Review, you obviously have your finger on the pulse of scholarship and, and uh, what people are working on. Um, how do you think how much do you think that we know about those plane crashes, about the 53, you know, about those ni- early 1954 plane crashes. Has there been scholarship on that? Or is this article the most informative piece of writing about those events? Okay, so I think that this article pr- and the letters around this time are the most reliable and direct, well, reliable given Hemingway's mm propensity for exaggeration, <laughs> but they're the most reliable sources or at least original close, closest to the source or the event um, resources that we have. Um, and we, we have a letter again to Kip Figgis where he does explain or, or sort of uh, list out his injuries um, and that those injuries are pretty consistent with, you know, what he says in the, uh, the Christmas gift article itself. 
Uh, it feels like when you see it in biographies, uh, Reynolds, uh, for example, pretty much just takes the list uh, that Hemingway provides. You know, there's only, I mean, I talk about in some of my work, the crashes, and I've seen other people at least address them. But in terms of scrutinizing what actually happened or looking up records from the investigation of the crash, I haven't seen anybody do anything like that. There was an article in the, I think it was fall, it might have been spring 2016 Hemingway Review by a wonderful uh, woman named Selma Carol, Carol Larson. I'd say it's a complicated last name. So sorry, Selma, <laughs> if I mispronounced it. Um, I've never heard her say it. <laughs> um, but she was friends with the man who is the captain of the riverboat, the SS Murchison that, that saves them, the, the launch um, after the first cra- uh, crash. She knew his son by just a fluke. Mm. And um, she interviews his son and, you know, makes some surprising suggestions that we can talk about, about what might have been the cause of, of the first crash. But that's the closest to, you know, somebody going in there and really scrutinizing the crash itself or, or the injuries that I've seen. Yeah. Okay. So the, what do you take from this piece? Like what's the, uh, how does Hemingway, Hemingway is faced with the assignment of chronicling or summarizing what has happened to him. And so what, what do you observe about, his performance and how he approaches that task in this article. Well, I mean, there's so many things to say there, right? We could talk about the tone, which is, you know, it's Hemingway being funny, um, sort of a a little bit trying to make light of the situation. Um, But whenever Hemingway's funny, he's also, he's sort of flat footed with his humor sometimes. And so it can become obnoxious. It can become bizarrely like TMI, too much information. He's like, please stop. Yeah. Do you have an example of, of when, of Hemingway's humor in this piece? Like, yeah, that's, that's probably a really good place to start about think. So he's definitely not being like, he's like, playing the victim or he's not being mawkish about this. So how does he try to, how does he try to be funny? One of the first ways it is through his, the interplay with Mary and Mary's personality and his personality and the way she responds to being in Africa and um, particularly his obligations, which are really self pointed obligations as an honorary game warden and you know even in just the beginning of the piece he talks about how his duties as an honorary game warden um were not and always pleasurable to my wife and so you think okay that's fine but then he goes on to say that it's because they will be engaged in marital relations and an emergency will, <laughs> and he's torn away from his marital obligations. So it's that kind of thing. Immediately you get this sense of, of humor, but even I think also more to the point, once the crashes happen, he uses humor to show that he is in control of the situation, that there's um, an understanding of what's happening. Um, and, you know, he, um, 
I guess the best way that I can think to put it is that he recognizes it's a stressful situation and he uses humor to show how well he handled it. So even, for example, after the first crash, there's a, a, a moment with Roy Marsh, the pilot of the first crash, and he says that uh, he was speaking to Roy Marsh and Dog and Roy Marsh was <laughs> answering him back in straight baboon dog. And, you know, what you are led to understand is that they're nipping at each other. Like they're angry, they're tense, they're concerned. But Hemingway's humor helps him helps him and helps us understand that, of course, that's a natural part of what happens after you've been in a crash and you're in a stressful situation. Yeah, and so you're saying that this kind of arch way of communicating, it's sort of his way of maintaining control of mm-hmm. a situation that he has no control over. There's the moment. So they have the first crash, which by all accounts was the less severe of the yeah. two crashes. The problem is that they're stranded. Mm-hmm. And there's the moment where they see a boat coming that it perhaps is going to be their, their rescue. And he says, I regarded the sight of this launch as a most pleasurable experience. And then he keeps going. They signal to the launch and he says, uh, this was a trip that only comes once a month. Therefore, was a most fortuitous arrival. Like nobody talks <laughs> like that. He doesn't talk like that. So he's being understated to the point of being ludicrous, right? With this. Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So, okay. Well, actually, I as, as I mentioned, what is the difference between the first crash and the second crash in terms of severity and what Hemingway himself goes through. Right. So the first crash, uh, that was a, so little context, the, the entire event was uh, a Christmas gift. That's the title uh, for Mary. So at the end of the safari, she Hemingway jokes, and this is one of his little snide chips at her that she did not feel she had seen Africa because she'd not seen the Congo. And so she wants to do, you know, a flyover trip of the Congo. And that's the Christmas gift, you know, because Hemingway doesn't get to have time to go because of his honorary game warden responsibilities. He has no time to go into Nairobi to buy her a material gift. So this experience is the gift. Um, and so this is probably, I think, the third day of the trip. Uh, and they're up by Murchison Falls um, and they're admiring the incredible uh, wildlife, the wildlife was sort of uh, tightly, um, tightly uh, moving together tightly at this point, because Africa had been in a drought for two years. So there were very few spaces to get water. So you would see, you know, uh, hippos and elephants and also crocodiles, all sort of in reasonable proximity. And so they're sort of marveling at this as they fly uh, over the lake and over Murchison Falls. And we're told the description is very deliberate. It's very careful. There's a flight of uh, a flock of um, black and white ibis who come toward the plane and Roy Marsh swerves or goes down to avoid them, to avoid hitting them. And then we're told that the plane's propeller and rear rudder hit a telegraph wire. And that's then, and then there's a beautiful description again, sort of comic where, you know, Roy Marsh says, 
well, he this is not in that piece, but we were told later by Hemingway somewhere else. I forget what piece that Roy Marsh is something. It might be in a letter. Okay, we're going down. (laughs) (laughs) We're going to go down. And so, you know, Hemingway in the Christmas gift describes it as it was a very soft, as soft as possible landing in the bush but that you hear the metal rending and um, all that. But the the actual crash itself, they landed in, uh, you know, it appears to be an elephant's um, stomping ground or area. And so they land and Mary, I think she's the worst off after the first crash. She has, uh, they can't get her pulse right away. She's clearly in shock. When they do get her pulse, it's 155. Um and she does, it turns out later, we find out she has two broken ribs. So she's in pain because that's a really painful injury. And Hemingway's bruised and maybe has dislocated his um, right shoulder. So those are the extent of the injuries. Roy Marsh's injuries are not mentioned if there if there were any. And so it feels um, after that, the key is to survive until they're rescued. And that's the first question. By the way, that's what Selma's article challenges because um, this young man or this man who was the son of the river boat captain says there's no way there would have been telegraph wire there in that area of of, uh, of where the plane went down um, and that he thinks they hit believe it or not a really tall apparently anthills in Africa can go up to 250 feet and so he thinks they probably hit an anthill but that's maybe why there's so much concern in the piece for being on message, getting it right, because the plane crash was investigated. Mm. And so, um, you know, that's just speculation by this person, but I thought I would mention it. Before you get on to the second flight, I don't see any instance in this article of Hemingway blaming Roy Marsh and and his decision making. Do you do you agree with that? Yeah, I do. I really do. And in fact, he he knew Roy Marsh prior to this flight. You know, Roy Marsh was the mail pilot who brought the mail on the safari. Um, What's more curious to me is his handling of um, Reggie uh, Cartwright, right? Because Reggie Cartwright, there's a moment there we can explore later, but Reggie Cartwright is the the pilot of the second plane. And um, I think he has more mixed feelings about what happened that time. They're stranded after the first accident and they, they end up going onto a second flight so they can be flown for medical treatment and, and so forth. And what's the, what are the details behind that? Well, there was an option to drive and Hemingway preferred that drive. Uh, he did not think the runway, such as it yes, was, didn't, right. he calls it the alleged yes. runway. <laughs> it was not a very smooth surface. But Reggie Cartwright has this um, uh, de Havilland Rapide. I think it, it, my research told me that's a 12-seater. Can't claim to know <laughs> planes that well. But he he wanted to take them. He said, no, no, I can get all, I can get this plane down this runway and into the air. And that, of course, is a much shorter trip to do it by air. So they agree. But Hemingway is skeptical. And they say about two-thirds of the way, no, sorry, one-third of the way down the runway, uh, the plane goes up and then rapidly comes back down um, and then it catches fire. And so this is a more intense crash. It's it's a more sudden and alarming crash. Uh, you know, for example, apparently um, Roy Marsh cut the engines and he glided into a stop. This is a much 
uh, more jarring crash. And so he says, you hear the rending of metal and then the plane catches on fire. And there's this moment, uh, you know, where you have to figure out how to get out of the plane and Roy Marsh and Mary Hemingway were able to get out of the plane through an, a window, uh, which was, you know, something for Hemingway was a little bit pinned, but also he wouldn't have all accounts wouldn't have been able to get out through that window. because big guy. Um, but they get Mary and Roy get out. I'm assuming Reginald, and we can talk about that too, gets out in the same way. But Hemingway is trying to, as the plane is catching fire and the cabin is filling with smoke, is trying to get out using the door, but the door has sort of been jammed shut. And he's trying to use his shoulder, but his shoulder has been injured and it's very painful. So he winds up using his head as a battering ram. Uh, to get the door ajar. And then he gets out of the plane um, and they move off a bit to a bit away from the plane. And he has this really curious passage where he starts talking about listening to the ammo, which is really just the bottles of alcohol, yeah, right. <laughs> you know, ex- explode and before the plane fully catches fire. So it was a pretty bad crash. So when he says, when you're referring to how he escapes as a battering ram, this is something like when I'm in the article, it says I opened the door by pressure exerted by my head and left shoulder. That makes it seem like a much less violent exit. But we kind of know this from extra textual information that he really did bludgeon the door open with his head, right? He does well, he, yeah. do- he doesn't use the battering ram uh simile. Right. But that's where, you know, the nature of his injuries um, and what they reveal about what he experienced becomes that becomes the clue to how violent the crash was. But also what you're pointing out here is something that's true of the entire article, which is that he is trying to minimize his injuries, act like, again, that he has injuries, but they're under his control Um, it's really not, I don't believe it to be true. I think he was hiding the extent of his injuries, both to the public and, and maybe even to himself. The one detail that he includes a few times is when he talks about the cerebral fluid that oozes out of his ear, which he is, he, even, even Hemingway, who's in a posture of understatement has to acknowledge is not a good thing. Although I like Mary's line about, <laughs> yeah, he asked Mary, um, "Do you am I am I um, do you see any uh, brain fluid coming out of my my uh, skull fracture or whatever skull injury?" And she says, "Oh, darling, we both know you don't have any brain. <laughs> <laughs> so can't do that." So that's a really funny moment. But yeah, that's that's a pretty severe injury, and he does. Also, he mentions twice that he's bleeding from every orifice, you know, so. Yes. And so, I mean, again, this also isn't in the article, but uh, Hemingway ended up going to Venice to sort of recuperate. And there are pictures that are taken of him and he just looks in terrible shape, like visibly, not only the sort of burn marks on his arm and hand, but just he has this kind of vacant expression in his face. That's what sort of made it seem like, how did this guy write write an article 
you know, at, at this point. Um, so it's pretty, it's pretty well the consensus that that second crash really took a lot out of him. I think so. And, you know, I, I don't know the nature of brain injury well enough to say maybe Andy Farrah mm. could help us yeah. out here, but um, he seems almost immediately after the crash more in control of himself than he is a couple of days later, as if the injury and the true nature of the injury starts to set in. And I mentioned that because also off the page of this article is a trip to Mombasa that he took right afterwards. Uh, it was supposed to be a fishing trip, but he obviously couldn't fish. But while he was there, there was a sort of minor fire and he tried to help put it out and he fell into the flames. He lost his footing and fell into the flames and he sustained additional burns on his head, his lips, uh, his arms, so and his hand. So that those are that that's the condition that he arrives, you know, that all those injuries are sustained by the time he's in he's in Venice. So Yeah, you see the his all of his Italian friends like Fernando Pivano and they're all sort of surrounding him. It's almost like a a funeral or like a deathbed situation it really, really looks grim. For the Hemingway reader who wants to make a connection between the Christmas gift, uh, this article, and perhaps some of Hemingway's other works, one of the things that I find particularly fascinating is that by, by any definition, this is a near-death experience. So Hemingway gets to actually try out the literary trope of portraying near-death experiences in literature. And so this is something he addresses in the article. And so he says, um, people ask me, what do you think about? Did your life flash before your eyes and things like that? So what is his conclusion about that? And is there any way that we can take what he says about that moment in this article and sort of connect it with other Hemingway works? That's one of my favorite moments because, well, there's a lot of things that happen there, but he says that you, you, something along the lines of, you know, maybe some people's lives rush before their eyes, but that didn't happen to me. Instead, he becomes incredibly present and aware of technical details. Um, and that, and what's happening and, and the sequence of what's happening Um it's an incredible thing because he's not in any way moving away from the experience or even aggrandizing it. He is, he becomes just completely present and registers these very small details and what he has to do to survive. And, you know, it's totally different when I think about it um, to the passage in a farewell to arms where Frederick Henry is, um, is hit by that shrapnel and he says, you know, that his life flew out of him and, and then it whooshed back in. Uh, that's so much that's right. uh, more romantic uh, and so much grander and almost, um, almost spiritual. That's metaphysical. Yeah. And here we have something so very different, yeah. um, something just grounded in the experience. This one reminds me more of Robert Jordan you know, sort of waiting for what's going to be an inevitable death. And, you know, the last line of for whom the bell tolls is he could feel his heart beating on the pine floor, forest floor. 
And so it's that kind of presence in the moment, you know, and he's talking about waiting for the guy he's going to kill to get into the yes. ray of sunlight right before then. Uh, so that, that kind of, it seems like older Hemingway uh, abandoned, you know, really uh, metaphysical approach to describing. Them. Can we, can we include in this conversation, the snows of Kilimanjaro mm-hmm. where literally the guy is dying and continue his, he continues to see scenes from his past, his past life. Mm-hmm. And I know that's not a sudden plane crash type situation. It's gangrene. So it's, it's more lengthy, but he kind of surrenders to those, to those memories. Mm-hmm. And I think it, that's maybe the difference. Like there's so many, and of course, both are connected to the two safaris yeah. 20 years apart. But I think maybe, you know, that's the difference between, um, a, a younger version of Hemingway because the um, the prompt for Harry is these are the things I won't get to write, yeah. right? He's still thinking right. about what he'll write. Um, and that's a man who's in his 30s, right? So now yeah. here's a man who's 54 and for a variety of reasons, looking a little rougher than <laughs> most 54-year-olds, <laughs> multiple concussions, alcohol abuse, you know, all kinds of versions of rough living um, and personal injury. And I, and he says um, he didn't want to think about his past. It's not just my past doesn't flash between my eye uh, before my eyes. In an earlier point, he says he doesn't want to think about his past because he's made so many mistakes in his past um, that it's not something that he wishes to dwell on. So that's a very, uh, you know, different, different stance. Now that said, he goes on to write a movable feast. So clearly he's still open to it later in life to, to tell the stories of other days. The other implication is that, and this is also true with the snows of Kilimanjaro is that when you start thinking about your past, you've surrendered trying to figure out ways to survive. Uh, What I, another thing, and this is uh, Michael will have to tell me, how many times we've talked about islands in the stream on this podcast? Very few, but there's the moment where <laughs> Thomas Hudson remembers that he's drowning. Yeah. And he says, all I was thinking about because drowning in romantic literature is where you is. That's when your thoughts, you know, rush. he says, I was like, how do I get to the surface? That's all mm-hmm. I was thinking about. So he was refusing to surrender. So it's, it's much like that, but this is wonderful because it's a nonfiction, uh, portrayal um in fact the other metaphysical moment if you want to call it that is the notion of reading your own obituary which which (laughs) is which is like a recurring joke in this article and it's literally he hemingway was reported as dead with his wife and so how does that play into the voice that hemingway has and the observations that he makes yeah so he was, they were reported dead um, because there was apparently a high uh, flying commercial airline that flew over the crash site and reported no survivors, um, which obviously turned out not to be true. Uh, so the news made that it made when the plane didn't arrive at its destination. And then this um, airliner made this observation. That's when the, the papers reported the deaths. Uh, he calls it a strange vice reading his um, obituaries. 
And, you know, he, he points out that some were very laudatory, some were more mixed, but that it became a fascinating exercise to read, you know, the just, you know, your own life and, and what people would, would say about you when you were gone. And of course, that's a really nice thing because he, I can't remember if it's in this, in the Christmas gift or not, but somewhere it might be in, um, under Kilimanjaro, he says, uh, that you use that as balm when the critics are really tough on you, you know, because they said nice <laughs> yeah. things about you before. Yeah, that's great. Hemingway observes that one of the kind of uh, touchstones of these obituaries is that they describe him as courting death or right. some kind of a, you know, that, that he was seeking death his whole life. And that is something that Hemingway specifically repudiates, right? He says that is not the case. Uh, he he doesn't want the reputation of 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 that. Like, how does he how does he make what what kind of distinction does he make? Yeah, the distinction there is fantastic. He says death is the easiest thing to find. He said you can find it with a razor right. blade. You know, you can find it by taking a bottle of secondol. Death is not hard to find. Um, but what he says, and this is, I think, you know, this is actually a really true moment in this um, uh, piece for me is that he studies death and he doesn't take any back talk from death. And he, he, there's a certain kind of um, bravado in the way that he studies death. He's not going to be afraid of it. He's going to get up close to it, but he's not seeking death. He's trying to learn about it. And he actually calls death, you know, um, a harlot, you know, that he carefully studies uh, so it's a really, uh, which means, of course, that it's enticing, it's fascinating, it's, uh, but it's not something that he's seeking. And I think that's a really important point because the obituaries, this is such an interesting piece because you asked about the obituaries. Of course, that's going to fuel the mythology of Hemingway, all the things that they're writing and the moments that they're going to celebrate are the moments of, because he'd become such a huge celebrity are the sort of mythology of Hemingway. You know, that's what's going to be happening in those obituaries. It's a little bit what's happening in the Christmas gift too, right? Um, a little bit of self-mythologizing, self-control about his his legacy. But I, I really do think that he's um, he's being honest about his interest in studying death. And he's trying to, as he always is in these later years, balance his celebrity with his actual craft and the seriousness with which he undertook his work. Do you think that in a publication like Look Magazine, the readers would be more inclined to expect a more cartoonish version of Hemingway, the the one who did like oh, goes to all the wars because he has some kind of a death wish or uh, is at, at the very least cavalier about it, um, rather than this really um, somber meditation that Hemingway has, but he says, as you, Suzanne, as you said, you could be said to have studied her, but you have not sought her. I mean, that's quite a subtle thing to point out to popular magazine readers. No? Right. Yeah. I mean, but in general, he is still providing the Hemingway of mythology uh, throughout most of the piece, you know, really being in control, not being afraid of elephants who try to attack him, uh, and also, you know, quite frankly, 
He doesn't talk a lot about the safari prior to the crashes, but he was not performing well as a hunter on that safari. And in fact, he about after Look left, after the photographer for Look left, he pretty much stopped shooting animals full stop with one or two exceptions. Um, So, you know, this is a man who I think had a lot of indications of his own aging and, and decreasing powers. But he also knew that his celebrity revolved around a certain image of him. So I think he plays with that image, but he also has his his personal agenda about, but I'm still a damn good yeah, writer right. who really does my work. Since we mentioned it and talked around it, I, Suzanne, I'm wondering if you could read that paragraph that starts with, in all obituaries or almost all. Okay. In all obituaries, or almost all, it was emphasized that I had sought death all my life. Can one imagine that if a man sought death all of his life, he could not have found her before the age of 54? It is one thing to be in the proximity of death, to know more or less what she is, and it is quite another thing to seek her. She is the most easy thing to find that I know of. You can find her through a minor carelessness on the road with heavy traffic. You can find her in a full bottle of second all. You could find her with any type of razor blade. You could find her in your own bathtub, or you could find her by not being battle wise. There are so many ways of finding her that it is stupid to enumerate them. I think that is such a powerful paragraph. Um, so great. Thanks for, thanks a lot for reading that. Um, so we, a couple other things about this piece and, and you, I think we mentioned this at the very beginning of the conversation when you pointed out that the title is a kind of a, an ironic poke at Mary who wanted the trip in the first place. Do we learn anything about their relationship in the way that Hemingway writes the article, uh, always referring to her as Miss Mary. You know, one of the things that strikes me is, and we're glad for the new book about Mary, um, because I think that she is of the wives, you know, probably the least Mm. uh, understood. Um, But one of the things that you can see uh, to me is that she led a little bit more of... um, you know, a flashy life, an indulgent life. So, uh, you know, he, he makes a joke in Under Kilimanjaro about how she had to have a Christmas tree regardless of the dangers of getting it and that she likes to go to Nairobi to go shopping and take a break from the safari. And, of course, here I haven't seen Africa. I haven't done Africa properly. I must see the Congo. So they, there is this sense of Mary as, um, you know, somewhat – I don't know, extravagant or a little bit more extravagant than Hemingway. And also, you know, there's all the references later on to their New York friends. And that's fascinating because Hemingway really didn't ever like New York that much. And so it's really interesting to see him talk about all these restaurateurs and saloon owners and bar owners. And one gets a sense that in many ways that was more Mary's world than his. At the same time, she is tough as nails. She tells him like it is, for example, you have no brains, darling. Right. Um, she is witty. She's tough. She's strong. 
Let's not forget that this is the same safari where he took his African fiance, Deba. And I think Mary's quip was, well, she should at least have a bath before she joins the family. You know, uh, Mary understood. And that is not uh, mentioned in this article that dalliance. Yeah. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But that's in the background. And Mary was more confident, more self-assured. She, I believe said she was determined to be the last Mrs. Hemingway and, and figured out a way to handle him. So you see Hemingway really uh, serving her in a lot of ways, handing her film for her cameras and uh, really looking to her for advice and guidance and, and telling her how, um, how wise and how, how wicked her sense of humor is, how wise she is and how wicked her sense of humor is. So he clearly has a lot of affection for her, but he also sees there's that little bit of undercut. Like I haven't seen Africa. Let's have this wonderful plane trip that winds up into, into crashes. Yeah. So. so she comes out. Okay. In the, in this, in I the depiction, so. there's also, you know, I also wanted to get to this really incredible sequence of serial name dropping where it's a train of associative memories where he start he starts talking about McCarthy and then he goes from one person to another. And is, is that meant to convey that this is just the train of thought that he's on or the world that he's in? What, what's, what value does that have? Yeah. So of course he is presenting these thoughts as the disjointed thoughts of a man with a concussion. Um, and, you know, there is an association that moves him from one figure to the next. But after McCarthy, what's really striking about this list is that there are really almost all of them, New York, um, newspaper people, restaurateurs. He mentions Billingsley, who owned the Stork Club. Um, It's a surprising list, because if you know Hemingway, you know, he never, you know, like I said before, he never really took to Manhattan. It was never a space that he enjoyed. And as we know, Mary lived in Manhattan after he died. So clearly I feel like that's more her space. But what's also interesting is that some of the people he mentions like Walter Winchell are really known for, you know, gossip magazines and Leonard Lyons. And, yeah. Yeah. And Lyons. Yeah. And, and then their own feud and <laughs> talking about uh, the gossip culture. And to my mind, what this demonstrates more than anything in this article is the degree to which Hemingway is aware of his celebrity and is a little bit, he's uncomfortable with it, but he doesn't see another option for it. This goes right up there in the lines where he says, I was drinking a Tusker beer. I am in no way being paid by Tusker yeah, to say, right. I yeah. was, he knows he's, aware he's of it. doing yep. endorsements And so there's just this, um, but at the same time, you know, as Rosemary Burwell says, you know, of this period in Hemingway's life, he became trapped by the persona he created. And you can, you can see that frustration, I think, in a lot of ways, um, you know, and also in the fact that he wasn't writing a great deal, you know, after the old man in the sea, or he was writing, but he wasn't finishing things. So I think also one thing that we shouldn't skip over in this associative train is that he, and this is quite an appropriate topic to touch on at the end of 2022 is that Mm -hmm. he talks about the violence. He has a kind of a violent fantasy towards Mm -hmm. Joseph McCarthy. So (laughs) 
<laughs> it's like a it's like a political I mean, can you imagine the most famous writer in the world or at least in America saying I wondered if there was anything wrong uh with Senator Joseph McCarthy which is which a which a 577 solid would not cure. Right. That's just part of the yeah. article. It's part of a magazine article. Yeah, and he blames it on the concussion, but he also thought about it. And another thing to point out that many of the New York figures that he points out are Jewish, you know, and therefore probably on the wrong side of the whole, you know, McCarthy phenomenon. Mm, Good point. Um, So that's just a possible observation there. But also, I think with McCarthy, he says he wanted to know how McCarthy would have handled the plane crashes without his, you know, the protection of, you know, the Senate behind him. Would he have been manly? Would he have stood up to the circumstance as well? And so I find that a a really interesting, um, like calling McCarthy out for his bravado and his style, even though in many ways, Hemingway had similar style just toward different ends. He had such a low tolerance for political grandstanding and Mm -hmm. rhetoric and uh, things like that. So yeah. And it's uh, to have that in the middle of this magazine piece is, is uh, a little, a little startling. Uh, I also uh, do want to mention there's one other passage where he because I know we talked about the obituaries where he essentially says that the reason that he's writing this piece is to clarify exactly what happened so that we don't have this kind of romanticization or fantasy the way he says uh, in the reading of our obituaries, it was incidents like that, which came into my mind. I thought that perhaps a true account of the two crashes and how one felt before, during, and after might be justified. So that's really what we're doing here, right? Suzanne, like that, he's just, this is his document that presents his side of these events. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I think it's, it is so much more than that, though, in the end. And there is a little bit of uh, self-mythologizing that goes on. Uh, He, you know, he has this, uh, moment with an elephant where the elephant is very close to him (laughs) but just can't run get it to him on the hill and you know he he portrays them as in a profound argument together and but he's standing his ground you know and he's hitting the elephant with rocks and you know he has a lot of admiration for the elephant but he wants to be safe but that kind of bravery and deciding to include that in the piece just like he decides to include the way that they made the camp so quickly and they thought to create a temporary runway should they be found. You know, just that practical, I'm a seasoned person in extreme circumstances, you know, that is adding to that self-mythologizing as well. So I, you know, it may be a true account, but it's also a true account that is reaffirming some of the central uh, myths of the Hemingway persona. Yeah. And so the, you talking about elephants reminds me that probably we haven't captured enough how much animals are part of this article and how much, mm-hmm. I mean, they're in the middle of Africa and they're there in many cases to look at animals. And Hemingway seems like, you know, that famous remark that I think this is the one takeaway remark. Elephants are extremely nice people. <laughs> Well, he did love elephants. You know, in fairness, he never shot an elephant. Yes, that's right. He had yeah. 
a tremendous amount of respect for elephants. If we think about Garden of Eden, and, yeah, you know how right. Leon Davy feels after betraying the elephant. His awareness of the way elephants used to visit the bones of their dead. Um, things that he learned about elephants that made them, I think, for him, very different creatures than some of the other big game. Um, but it's not just that. He, in general, as we remarked on earlier, this was not as much of a shooting safari. And when it was a shooting safari, it was largely done because there was, you know, a lion that was eating goats or cows, you know, in his honorary game warden responsibility hat. Um he clearly seems to have softened toward animals. I mean, I think a lot of people recognize this toward the end of his life. And what's really remarkable about animals in the Christmas gift is how much he anthropomorphizes yeah. them, uh, not just having that conversation with the elephant, but also, you know, when he's commenting on all of the animals at the lake by Murchison Falls, saying that they were all socializing nicely together and not eating each other as you might expect, you know? So he has um, his, his, his reflections on animals are, are much softer. And he even tells the story of how he and Mary acquired Blackie, his dog who, you know, he loved a great deal and who lived with him at the Finca, but they originally met Blackie in um, Ketchum, Idaho. And so, you know, the dog just adopted them and he, you know, he has this real passionate and loving relationship with this dog. So he brings him back to Cuba with him. Yeah. And if we're talking about anthropomorphizing animals, he also has a note where he has a sexual fantasy about a lion, lioness. Right. Right. Yes. Mm -hmm. Right. In, in yes. this dream, this lioness who became my fiance was one of the most delightful creatures that I've ever dreamt about. She had some of the characteristics of Miss Mary and she could become irascible. You know, so there is there. He's very, he's very. Free. You missed the best line there, though. You missed the very best line. This is a family friendly podcast, Suzanne. You are turning this into a racier. Hey, it's <laughs> We have to represent him in his own words. You got it. On one occasion, I recall she did an extremely perilous act. Perilous to me, that is. Yeah. So we yeah. can leave it there. <laughs> we will. And I apologize <laughs> to my sponsors. At the <laughs> but that is an incredible also example of, of his humor. And, you know, the other thing I will say is the sex bit in this, in this piece, the free discussion, pretty free and frank discussion of Mary and, you know, and Hemingway's, you know, sex life getting interrupted and now sex with this lion you can see that, I don't know whether he's losing his filter you know, or yeah. he's just becoming intentionally more daring. But I always think about these things as the backdrop to, you know, his ability to write something like Garden of Eden, you know, which is um, not cross species sex, but is, you know, instead, you know, like uh, playing with gender roles and, and crossing gender roles. So, and also we know this is the safari not in the Christmas gift where there's the famous note about how, you know, uh, Mary likes him to be his girl, her girl. And, you know, and then he also threatened to pierce his ears um, like a, a warrior right. the, of the Maasai. So there were a lot, this is a, a safari that seems to 
stir up yeah. and liberate some of uh, what I consider to be lifelong sexual interests and concerns. Yeah, that's great. Um, that No, that's a great, and maybe the place we can leave it, Suzanne, and maybe you're, what you just said goes towards this question is about the legacy of the piece. Again, as we started the interview, I was mentioning that I feel this is really an underread story. Not too many people are, are you know, look, locked into byline Ernest Hemingway or these later magazine pieces. But you think that uh, this has any traction or what do you think is the, um, the life of this story? I will say that I think it's a piece for people who are already familiar with Hemingway, right? This is not something to, to read cold. Um, but if you are familiar with Hemingway, because it is in his own voice in, in a way that, you know, there's not the, the masquerade of another narrator. Um, there are lots of interesting things to learn. And what's really interesting about not just the tone um, and some of the topics he tackles, you know, over the overarching concern is how to tell the story of these crashes when he is such a huge celebrity um, while maintaining that celebrity and, and fulfilling the expectations around it, but also trying to explain, you know, what happened. But I, I want to go back to how much he, he obfuscates his injuries, because I think that there's this moment where he is going into a room full of uh, journalists at the end. And, you know, he, he pretty much walks into that room with his extensive, injuries, spinal fluid, blood leaking out of orifices, a da damage to um, vertebrae, uh, damage to his liver, if all of the list is to be believed, not being able to hear his own voice consistently, having double vision. And he walks in and he, he talks about having a bottle of gin and a bunch of bananas. And he says to them, my luck, she is running good. And it's one of the saddest moments of all of Hemingway's public performances for me, because to go back to Rosemary Burwell, there you see how trapped in his own mythology he is and feels an obligation to perform it for his public. No, that's really well observed. Suzanne Del Gizzo, such a pleasure. Thank you for joining us on One True Podcast, our holiday edition to talk about the Christmas gift. My absolute pleasure. Thanks, Mark. Thanks, Michael. And thanks to you all for listening in. This episode is available on OneTruePod.com or wherever you get your podcasts. We want to announce the publication of One True Sentence, Writers and Readers on Hemingway's Art by Michael and me. The introduction is by Ken Burns and Lynn Novick. Please see OneTruePod.com for more information. I also wanted to add... Um, Michael and I are really happy to announce that we will be rejoining Patreon uh, with the One True Book Club. And as it happens, the One True Book Club will be a very, very slow read of A Farewell to Arms. So we will be going chapter by chapter through A Farewell to Arms. If you want to join us to support the podcast and listen in on our book club and correspond with us, please join us at patreon.com slash one true podcast. Our show is supported 
by the Hemingway Society, the English Department at the University of Evansville, and Florida Gulf Coast University. Join us next time as we continue exploring Hemingway, his life, his work, and his world. Until then, I'm Mark Chirino with Michael Von Kamen, and this is One True Podcast. Oh,